You look at what does turnover really do to that patient relationship and the confidence that the family or the patient has in the caregivers. So there's that, but then there's a huge financial implication. Right now, the data shows that the average nurse turnover costs an organization $44,000. And the average hospital is spending between three and $6 million on turnover every single year. And so when you look at that and you think about, well, why are people leaving? And two of the main reasons that come up is their leader and the culture. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, I am honored today that the Orsini Way has partnered with the Finley Project to bring you this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. The Finley Project is a nonprofit organization committed to providing care for mothers who have experienced the unimaginable, the loss of an infant. It was created by their founder, Noel Moore, whose sweet daughter Finley died in 2013. It was at that time that Noel realized that there was a large gap between leaving the hospital without your baby and the time when you get home that led her to start the Finley Project. The Finley Project is the nation's only seven-part holistic program that helps mothers after infant loss by supporting them physically and emotionally. They provide such things as mental health counseling, funeral arrangement support, grocery gift cards, professional house cleaning, professional massage therapy, and support group placement. The Finley Project has helped hundreds of women across the country, and I can tell you that I have seen personally how the Finley Project has literally saved the lives of mothers who lost their infant. If you are interested in learning more or referring a family or donating to this amazing cause, please go to thefinleyproject.org. The Finley Project believes that no family should walk out of a hospital without support. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Rossini, and I'll be your host again this week. Nursing leadership is a topic that we've discussed more than once in this podcast. I've had the privilege of interviewing Lori Gunther from Sonova Associates and more recently, Dina Carey from Virginia Hospital Center. Both discussed the importance of nursing leadership and how it can negatively or positively affect not only the culture of the hospital, but the patient's and the nurse's well-being. My guest today is taking those concepts and the topic of employee retention to the next level. Kristen Baird is a nurse and former healthcare marketing executive. She is the founder of Baird Group, a consulting firm that helps healthcare leaders create cultures where patients want to come for care, where physicians want to practice, and where employees want to work. She's the author of five books and hundreds of articles on culture leadership and patient experience. Her flagship learning course, which we'll be discussing today, is called Be the Leader, Nobody Wants to Leave, Eight Skill Builders, for busy leaders, is earning international accolades for increasing employee engagement 
and retention by building essential leadership skills. Kristen earned a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a Master's in Health Services Administration from Cardinal Stritch University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Baird was appointed by the Secretary of Health to serve as an advisor to the National Health Service. She is a highly sought-after speaker for state and national conferences, where she pushes leaders to think differently about their roles in culture and engagement. Well, Kristen, thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule for joining me. I'm excited about this conversation and where it's going to lead us. And I think the audience is really going to get for a real treat today. So thank you, Kristen. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that has just really, it's been a gut punch, I think, for the entire industry is grasping where we are with turnover right now. And when we look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics data, it's one half to two times somebody's annual salary to replace them. When I started researching turnover, I was just appalled to see what the numbers really look like. And when you're looking at healthcare across the nation, it's around 16%, which is troubling enough. But then when you drill down into different segments like long-term care, you know, that it's become accepted that they range between 45 and 50% turnover. And you look at home care, you know, with the aging boomers, we need more home care than ever. And the turnover there is at 65%. And you stop and think, you know, I just mentioned home care and long-term care. Those are, are relationships you develop with your caregiver because they're not as episodic as the acute care. And you look at what does turnover really do to that patient relationship and the confidence that the family or the patient has in the caregivers. So there's that, but then there's a huge financial implication. Right now, the data shows that the average nurse turnover costs an organization $44,000. And wow. the average hospital is spending between 3 and $6 million on turnover every single year. And so when you look at that and you think about, well, why are people leaving? And two of the main reasons that come up is their leader and the culture. Most people would think it's money. It's not money, right? No, money doesn't come in at the top. It is not typically money. And just an interesting story, when we go into organizations and we do focus groups, we'll talk to the frontline people and we'll say, you know, what inspires you to do good work? And they will almost always speak from the heart. You know, I, I want to make a difference. I would want my mother treated this way. I would want my grandma treated this way. So they speak from the heart. And then we ask leaders, what inspires you to do good work? And the leaders will say the same thing. You know, I believe in what we do. I want to do what's best for our patients. But then we ask another question that is pivotal. In this whole equation, we ask them, what do you think inspires your staff to do good work? And so often they say money. And when you hear that and you realize the staff is saying heart and they're speaking wallet, then the manager who has that belief isn't going to go out of their way to really work on engagement, to work on 
you know, giving recognition and reinforcement and creating a culture because they think, I can't change the budget. I think when, when people get a raise, the money's great. You know, everybody loves like, what can I buy? And now I can move to a bigger apartment. But I think the raise really symbolizes, the money symbolizes that recognition. You know, when I was young, my father was a police officer and then he went into the private sector and worked in security and banking. And I remember maybe being a junior high student and my father coming home all excited because he got a promotion. And he couldn't wait to tell my mother he got a promotion. And my mother, who's, you know, her job is to pay the bills, right? To make sure the supermarket, make sure they don't run out of money. And my mother says, well, how much more money did you get? And he said, Carol, they're not giving me any more money, but I got a promotion. And she looked at him and said, but I need to pay the bills. And so the point of that conversation is that my father was so excited, not because of the money, because he got recognition, right? I mean, that's what you really crave. Mm -hmm. That's normal. People do crave recognition. And so often we're speaking two different languages. You know, we have one person that says, I don't feel we need to give recognition. That's their job. And yet we ask people all the time, you know, what inspires you? What gives you that extra surge of wanting to do better? And it's usually recognition. I can't think of a time anybody has ever said, it's when I get more money. It's usually the recognition. One of my favorite quotes is the worst thing that could happen to a business is when their most passionate employees go silent. People want to be heard. And I'm going to ask you how we can fix that, you know, later on down the line. But I think that's a common misunderstanding of what makes a good leader. And so, and a lot of that is communication. So you speak a lot about culture and leadership, and you mentioned before that they are related. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, is it the poor leader that makes the poor culture or is it the poor culture that brings on the poor leader? Yes. (laughs) Okay. There you go. So let me just kind of start at the beginning, which, you know, I don't know the chicken or the egg. It, it is. Let me just start with a definition. Okay. And so when we talk about culture, there's all these scientific definitions of culture that are very flowing prose. I'm going to give you the down and dirty straight talk. Culture is how we really do things around here. So you can put anything you want on that mission, vision, value plaque that hangs in the boardroom. But real culture is how things are really done around here. And so you cannot separate leadership from that because so much of the culture is dictated by leadership. And there was a Gallup study not long ago that said 70% of culture is directly attributed to leadership. And you stop and think about just one pat phrase, what you permit, you promote. I like that. What you permit, you promote. So you can say in your mission, vision, value statement, this is what we stand for. This is who we are. This is what we value. But when you come into an organization and this is how things are really done around here, it is very much about how the leader interacts with their people, what expectations they set, how they communicate, how they hold people accountable, how they build ownership, a sense of ownership. All of those things come right back to leadership. Yes. And be able to communicate and build a relationship. Because one of the things that I see as a frequent mistake is 
being inflexible, right? As a leader, not valuing, we talked about it before, not valuing your people. I've seen in the hospital setting and even in, in business where you have an employee who says, you know, my life circumstances have changed. She may be your best nurse or one of your top nurses. And but now I can't work Tuesdays anymore. Or now I can't work Thursdays. And the poor leader will just say, well, I can't help you. If I do that for you, I'll do that for everyone else and be inflexible. And then what happens? You lose her. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance that? You know, I don't want to permit things, but I need to, to make sure that I keep my employees. I don't want to be so inflexible that, that I'm losing good people. There's being permissive and there's being flexible. Mm-hmm. Now, the example you gave, a logical human being would hopefully be flexible and meet people where they are, you know, and lead with empathy. You know, oh, wow, things have really changed at your household. You know, I'm sorry to hear that. Let me see what I can do to help. And rally the team, get the team to talk about how can we support one another? I remember when I was a new nurse leader. And there was all of this discussion about hours and schedules and so on. And I pulled everybody together and I said, look around this room. We are all working mothers. And most of us have kids, I mean, that they were ranging from newborns to, I think the oldest might have been in junior high. That It was just the circumstance where we were all, you know, with young families. And I said, look around. There's going to be a day when, Sally, when your kids are sick and you're going to need to lean on somebody. And, you know, Lisa, you're going to have a situation too. How can we create an environment where we all feel supported and we want to work and we want to be here together? And so people really rally. Instead of being inflexible, where I'd say everybody has to do this schedule. We really worked together to make it a reasonable work environment. And it was completely foreign to every nurse in the unit. They had never had anybody even ask their opinion before. Yeah, I see that inflexibility as, a, as an issue, even when physicians are making their schedule. You know, if physician A says, gee, I can only work the 3 to 11 shift. And physician B says, well, I hate the 3 to 11 shift. I like to work the 7 to 3 shift. If you let them switch, everybody's happy, but you see some leaders that'll go, nope, everybody's got to work the same amount of shifts. Why? Let's try to make an environment where people want to come to work, where it fits into their lives. And I guess COVID made that even more important, right? Because now people have all of a sudden, their children are not going to school. So how do you deal with that as a leader? That's that you really got to be flexible, I would imagine. You do. You have to be flexible. And over 2 million women left the workforce during COVID because the bulk of the home responsibilities and the family responsibilities fall to the women. And you look at healthcare is predominantly women. And so if we cannot learn to be flexible, we're dead in the water. And what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and expecting different results. We have got to be flexible. And especially since we have five generations in the workforce right now. Really? Wow. I didn't think of that. And there are very different mindsets among those generations. I mean, you go all the way from the traditionalists down to the Gen Zs. And what is important to a traditionalist or a boomer is very different than an ex-millennial or Z. 
And that flexibility is huge. And if we keep going at a problem with this rigidity, we're never going to be able to solve the whole turnover issue. You referred several times when you were a nursing leader, and, and, and that's clearly your background and how you came up. So tell us a little bit about that. So after you graduated nursing school and, and how you moved into leadership, why you decided to move into leadership and why you decided to take those lessons that you learned and to where you are now where you're teaching other leaders. I absolutely love being a nurse. I'm very passionate about the work that nursing does. And my clinical background really was Well, I worked my way through college as a nursing assistant, an open heart unit, which gave me amazing experience. But then I also worked in med surge and then critical care. And I was one of those people who had a family and I thought, oh gosh, you know, public health looks pretty good for the hours. So I did public health and then went back to the hospital for a while in obstetrics and then worked in community outreach education. So I was all about reaching the community and had an affinity for marketing. And so I started doing some of that work too. And then this guy named Quint Studer. Who we all love. Well, he was a marketing director at the time. He hired me to be the Ask a Nurse manager. So Ask a Nurse was a triage and health information hotline, but it was housed in marketing. And so I all of a sudden had this job where I could be that nurse leader, but also keep my fingers into the marketing and business development. And he promoted me to marketing director. And then I went on to other organizations working in marketing and business development. But I've always had an affinity for leadership and culture and really asking why. I was that kid, you know, that said why all the time. The annoying kid. I was that kid too, yes. So I always could see, wow, we can do better than this. We could make this a better organization. Let's ask people what they really want. You know, so I'm a natural researcher, qualitative research. So my master's thesis was on patient perceptions of quality in clinical settings. And at the time, this was the early 90s. And I was doing my thesis research. And I can't tell you how many doctors would say to me, well, Ms. Baird, patients aren't qualified to gauge quality. Want and, and I would say, well, you know, they don't know that they're not qualified. So they're doing it anyway. So let's ask, shall we? So that really was my foray into patient experience and culture and leadership. So they all kind of melded together. And I am truly blessed to have had the journey that I've had. And then you go on and you write your five books and really start to teach more and more leaders how to lead. But I want to really get into the learning course. I love the name, Be the Leader. Nobody wants to leave. Eight skill builders for busy leaders. So tell us about that course. And I think everyone's asking right now, what are the eight skill builders? So maybe you can tell us a brief history, a brief uh, synopsis of that, because I think that's such a great course. I think I mentioned this to you last time. I've had leaders or bosses as a physician that if you said anything bad about him or her, I would smack you, slap you. Like I'm so loyal to her that I don't care what you say. She was the best ever. And then I've had leaders where I'm like, oh my God, this is just miserable. I got to get out of here. So This is something that's near and dear to my heart. And I'm frustrated that in business and in medicine that we don't always have the best leaders. So tell us about the course and how we can maybe learn from it. 
Yeah, I'd love to. First, let me say that one of the reasons we don't have the best leaders is that we have really good intentions when we promote people from within. We see this potential. We see the raw potential in, let's say, a nurse or a physician or a a tech. And we say, oh, we need a new manager. We need a, a leader in this area. You know, you're a really good nurse. Why don't you step up? And so we create this environment where we're trying to reward somebody like your dad, you know, what you were talking about with your dad. We want to give them, you know, say, hey, we really trust you. We want to elevate you. And then we we abandon them, that they have a great skill set for working on the front line, but they don't have the leader skill set. And the more I delved into that, the more I saw that Oh my gosh. I mean, everything from hiring right down to the crucial conversations and being able to coach, a lot of it is communication. And so we've been offering workshops and trainings for the last 25 years. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to take the best of the best and the most, you know, hard hitting pieces of all of those trainings and pull them together. You know, because as I talked to these nurse leaders across the country, they were constantly saying, hey, it's leadership, it's culture, and the two are inextricably linked. So I started to look at all of the things that were the biggest gaps in the research. And I started at the very beginning and I thought, all right, let's start from hiring. Let's hire for fit. So that's one of the skills that we really teach. And you're thinking, yeah, hire for fit. But you wouldn't believe how many people take this course and some of them are long-term leaders who say, oh my gosh, I realize now I've been winging it. I'm trying to make this match and I've been going into this, these interviews winging it or I'm rushed or I don't have a clear sense of what is a good fit for my team and what is a good fit for our organization. So helping them to define that. So there's hiring for fit, then the, the conversations that keep people engaged. And so we call that one mastering the stay interview. And so how do you re-recruit people? So you have to know how to have these conversations. And it's not a drive-by, hey, Tony, how's it going? That's all nice and friendly, but it's not going to make you feel engaged and valued. So learning to sit down and have the conversation with you about what makes a good day at work. How can I help you have more of those? What might make you dread coming to work? How can I help mitigate any of those situations? You know, when was the last time you thought about leaving? What was the circumstance around that? What could I do differently? So helping the person to know how to have those conversations. I think back of this dentist one time being kind of a smart aleck. He goes, you don't have to brush all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. (laughs) And so I always think of that when I'm thinking about, you don't have to do stay interviews with everybody, just the ones you want to (laughs) keep. You know, (laughs) I love that. So thinking about that as re-recruitment, talking with people about managing expectations, because most of the time, We don't manage expectations until somebody fails to meet them. And then we stop and think, huh, I wasn't clear. So a lot of that has to do with communication. And then there's coaching, mentoring, modeling, you know, managing. How do you do those things on a day-to-day basis to make sure that you're creating the culture that you really want to create? So 
there's a heavy emphasis on coaching, how to have conversations with people, crucial conversations, if you will. But, you know, looking at how do you look at somebody's behavior, what they produce, how they interact with other people, and then diagnose which level are they fully engaged, somewhat engaged, or disengaged based on those criteria. And then once you can spot the level of engagement, now we teach you how to coach to that level so that you can coach them up or coach them out. And we get really good results from that. The other thing we talked about too, Tony, is is recognition. So we spend some time on that, how to give meaningful recognition, how to connect to purpose. For me, I've always had this strong connection to purpose in healthcare. But as leaders, you got a two-pronged responsibility. One is seeing yourself as the leader. What's your connection there? Why do you want to be a leader? Helping them to articulate that. Why did you choose this? You know, what fills your cup? All right. Now, the second prong of that is now you've got all these people here. How do you help them connect to purpose? How do you look at their job description and tie it back to the mission, vision, values? How do you help this person to see that they are making a big difference in the organization? You talked about these conversations that you're having with each employee. You could have those conversations, but if the employee doesn't really think that you're listening, then what's the point? I've been in situations before, and I've heard this before, where you know, you're know you hiring a new nurse or a new physician or a new business person, and you ask three or four of your colleagues to or your nurse leaders to interview them, and they all interview the person, and then the boss picks who he or she wants anyway. And after a while, you go, you ask me your opinion, well, what'd you think of that person? We're thinking of hiring. Well, the what I'm thinking deep down inside is, what's the difference? You're not going to listen to me anyway. So those stay conversations. We had someone on this podcast, Captain Mike Abrashoff. People say to me all the time, my wife says, you're always talking about your podcast. And the reason why I think I do that is that over the last 50 episodes, I have learned so much from my guests and so many things in life hit home that when things happen, I'm like, oh yeah, but you know, here's a story about Kristen Barrett. And she mentioned that, and I had a podcast and so I'm doing it again. So for my audience, but Mike Abershaw, I would really recommend going back and listening to his podcast interview because he's amazing. He was graduate of Annapolis, finished at the bottom of his class. When it was time to give out a ship, they gave him literally the ship that was the worst ship in the Navy year in, year out, was the lowest performance. And Mike turned this from the lowest to the top ship in one year. And one of the things that he did was sit and make sure that he had an interview with every single one of his hundreds of sailors. And the, my favorite story, he asked the sailor, what can we do to make things better? And the sailor was very shy, didn't want to say anything. He said to the sailor, you're not leaving until you give me a, you know, some suggestion. And the sailor said, do you know why we paint the ship every six months? And the captain said, no, I, actually, I don't know why. He says, because the bolts that we use to tie down the guns, they rust and the rust goes down. And he goes, I always wondered, has the Navy ever heard of stainless steel? And so, so this sailor was responsible for the Navy changing all their bolts to stainless steel. And so 
I just love that story. I tell it all the time. But as you were talking about these conversations, I thought you can do lip service as a leader. You have to have the communication skills and the nonverbal language to show the person that you're speaking to that you actually care and you're listening to. And not everyone has that skill. We always teach you listen with your eyes as well as your ears. Love that. You know, that there's so much that is revealed by the nonverbal communication. Yeah. If you're multitasking, if I ask you, Kristen, what, you know, what can I do to keep you here? And while you're answering, I'm looking over at uh, some, you know, email, I'm just going to stop speaking. So I wonder in your experience, I ask this question a lot also, in your experience, can you take anyone or what percentage of people can you take? And even if you invested all the communication skills, they took your class, they really wanted to. Can anyone learn to be a leader? Or do you have to make sure that when you do that interview, that fit, that you identify the ones that are never going to be a leader? I hate to be a Pollyanna. I like to see the positive in people. I think that if people have the desire and are coachable, then a lot of wonderful things can happen. But there are people who I have coached who actually get into leadership positions. And as we're talking about what fills their cup and what really drives them, they realize they don't want to be leaders, that they're much better being one of the worker bees, that they really don't want that role. And that's okay. We don't all have to be leaders. But I think that the ones that do want to be leaders, the ones that accept the responsibility and the title, they must do whatever they can to hone their skills to be the best that they can be. And really, we've got to help them distinguish between management and leadership. There are things that we do that we have to manage. But when we're leading, we're really trying to bring out the best in everybody who works with us. You know, we want everybody to reach their maximum potential. And that's, you know, maybe not for everybody. So what's the best advice you can give to someone when they are interviewing someone for a a nursing leadership? So you're looking for an assistant nurse manager and you're the nurse manager. What would be the best question or what are you really looking for during that interview to see if this is a good fit? Well, the first thing I would do is I would bring together the staff. And I would ask them about, from their vantage point, what makes a good leader and what would be a good fit? What are some of the values we have in our department that are non-negotiable? That as we're trying to build the culture to be even better than it is today, what are the things that we must look for in a person? So have the staff help you to identify those qualities. You mentioned earlier you have these panel interviews and then the boss hires whoever they want anyway. Well, there's a better way of doing that. And that is bringing people together to talk about what is an ideal fit. What are the characteristics that we're looking for? And therefore, what are some questions that we should ask that are behavior-based that will get at that best candidate? And so, for instance, you know, you need somebody who can manage conflict. So if I were to ask anybody, you know, how are you at managing conflict? What do you think people are going to say? Oh, I'm really good. Okay. That's easy. So we don't ask it that way. We say, Tony, tell me about a time where you had to work with a team that experienced conflict. 
tell me about that. You know, you tell me about it and then I'll say, you know, what do you feel was your role in that situation? In hindsight, what would you do differently? How did the team resolve that conflict? What about that worked well? You know, and like I said, you're probing, you're getting at really delving down into it. And that is a learned process. You first identify the qualities. You have the team say, okay, if this is the quality we're looking for, what are some behavior-based questions that we can ask? And then how are we going to score the responses? Because there are people who come into interviews They're very charismatic. They're charming people. They win you over immediately. And then when you really look at how they answered the questions, if you have behavior-based interview questions, you can really separate the wheat from the chaff by having a scoring system. And so those are some of the elements that are often missing. It's really so important to identify, as you said, it starts with the intake because we often just say, Let's, especially if it's someone from outside the organization, right? We often say we're going to hire the person who has the Ivy League education with the most letters after her name or the most letters after his name, and yet maybe is not the best communicator. And I think that's the biggest mistake we make in medicine. It's the biggest mistake we make in business. And I would say you're bridging the gap really once again. And there's so many parallels between. What I say that the patient doctor relationship, the nursing patient relationship, the business leader, employee relationship, the leader, it's all the same. And it's really based on two words as far as I'm considered. Well, three words, loyalty, trust, and relationship. And that's where communication comes in. How can we create those three things? We had Stephen Covey on, where I'm bringing up previous podcasts. The speed of trust, yeah. The speed of trust. Yes. So that's something that's not a soft skill, just kind of circling back to the beginning and my pet complaint. And yet I don't think hospitals and businesses really invest enough in that. What can we do to make the people with the money, the bean counters, as they call them, invest in this kind of training for their leaders? You always want to prove return on investment for anything you do. Okay. So from the medical standpoint, I'm with you 100%. You know, we teach engagement, empathy, communication, gestures of respect when done well, foster the relationship that builds the trust. And when the trust is there, you have higher compliance. When you have higher compliance, you have better outcomes. So you can follow that whole thread through and say, as an accountable care organization, we want to make sure we have, you know, so that's one way to, to go. Another is to go the route of turnover and say, look, if we can reduce turnover by 1%, it's usually worth $306,000. That's the average. What would it mean to us if we could reduce turnover by X amount? So sometimes you have to go in with that data in order to be able to win the argument. It's often speculative and finance people don't like that. They want a guarantee and that's not always possible. So you have to be ready with some case examples, you know, and it's hard because the whole industry has been hesitant to invest in this. And yet what's the definition of insanity? We keep getting what we've always gotten. So let's try and shift the course a little bit. We're moving in the right direction. I think the Gen Z people, you spoke about the generations, whether it's business or healthcare, 
They don't tolerate bad leaders as much as we used to in our generation. You know, there are stories of doctors throwing charts and and nurses getting yelled at by their leaders. And it was, you know, I'm going to take it because I want my job, et cetera. I'm talking to more and more companies right now. And the biggest topic right now is creating a culture of safety and a culture of inclusiveness. And the Gen Z people they're not going to tolerate that. They're just, they're, they're going to leave. They're gone. No. <laughs> Kristen's shaking her head. No. No, I'm saying yeah. in 2025, 75% of our global workforce will be millennial. That is a major shift. So the millennial and Gen Zs have a different perspective on things and they are not going to tolerate. And so many of the millennials now are moving into leadership positions. So I've been coaching a lot of millennial leaders, which is very exciting because they bring a fresh perspective. So, you know, I hope that we're moving in the right direction. I really hope that we are. I really feel that we are in healthcare. We are the whole patient experience is driving now hospitals to put more emphasis on communication skills, building relationships with patients. Because again, the millennials and the generation Z, I remember a very common phrase when I was growing up is, He's a good doctor. He's got a lousy bedside manner, but he's a good doctor. So I'm going to go to him or go to her. Generation Z and the millennials are not going to tolerate that. You can be the greatest doctor in the world. If you don't have good communication skills, they're going to find someone else. And so it is moving in the right direction. And millennials get a bad rap, but they are doing some really good things in Gen Z. And it's making us more aware of culture. And and I think, and you're doing that too. So your work is amazing, Kristen. I don't know if I warned you about this question beforehand. I always finish with the same question on every podcast. and, And that is, what do you think is the most difficult conversation you've ever had? How can you give us some advice on how to navigate that? And it doesn't have to be personal. It could be a type of conversation, but let's leave the audience with some really pearls of wisdom on how to navigate the most difficult conversation. Well, I'm not so sure that it's the most difficult conversation I've had, but if I could stretch that out just a little bit, I am one of 10 children. Wow. And we had this big, crazy, loud family. And when I was four years old, my parents brought home my younger sister. And mom and dad both knew that something was not right from the very beginning. And she kept worrying, you know, that, oh, Patty's just not doing things like the other children. She doesn't cry. My mom was very concerned. And they brought her for all these batteries of tests at the University of Wisconsin. And they were finally going to get the results. And my parents sat down in this doctor's office and he came in and he didn't even sit down. He had his arms crossed in his white coat. And he said to my parents, your daughter's severely retarded. She'll never sit up. You have to put her in an institution. Wow. And my parents were heartbroken. I mean, they were devastated and both of them educators. And so My father said, you know, I really believe we should just take her home and give her as much stimulation and opportunity as possible. And he said, no, she's your eighth child. There is no way you are going to give her the attention she needs. She needs to be institutionalized. There's no way. And my mom said, no, we have to try this. And he looked at him and said, well, go ahead. Some people feel they make good pets. Oh my goodness. My parents sobbed all the way home. And 
seeing their grief and hearing this story over the course of my life, that was horrible news to get. But how it was delivered was absolutely, it was unconscionable. And what it has taught me is that we have so many opportunities. We have so many opportunities in healthcare, whether we like it or not. We are part of people's stories every single day. And we have a responsibility to ask ourselves, what do we want that story to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when they're telling a story about their experience with us, what are they going to say? And so that would be probably one of the most difficult conversations in my family that was severely botched, that has been pivotal for me in my life and in my career. And by the way, Patty did learn to sit up. She learned to walk and she went to high school. She got a diploma. She works a job. She lives independently. So guess what? My parents were right and he was wrong. Yeah. And as you know, I I mean, my presentation, Breaking Bad News, that's how I started. That's really what I've dedicated my life to is to teach physicians and nurses how to have that initial conversation with Breaking Bad News because as you know better than anyone, it can affect you adversely, not only in the immediate time when you hear the news, but also studies have shown that how you receive that news can affect someone up to 30 years and we're still counting. And so how many years ago was that? It was 50 plus. Yeah, don't (laughs) make me give my age. No, it was over 50 years. But honestly, I take that into my workshops. And one of the techniques I use is to look at an audience and say, I want you to think back to a time when a healthcare provider made an indelible impression on you. It could be good or bad, but just think to a time when a healthcare provider left this indelible memory or indelible impression. And people share their stories. And some are really good and some are really bad. But again, it goes back to we have these moments in time, these small moments in time where we get to make a choice about how we're going to deliver the news, how we're going to empathize, how we're going to engage with another human being at a time when they are most vulnerable. And you see tens of thousands of patients in the course of your career. You're not going to remember them all, but guess what? They're going to remember you. Absolutely. And to be fair, what I have found in my I hate to say decades of research and working with this topic is it's not just about to be fair to the doctors and the nurses. It's not just about telling them to be nice right, or to sit down, which is what we've done. We failed them by not training them how to do it and then told them to go do it. And I always say to my doctors when I'm training them, would you read a book on how to do an appendectomy and then go do surgery? And this is what we're doing for this really important communication skill to say, Here's a lecture. You know, I'm going to give you a quick acronym. Now go do it. So I think it's human nature when you are very uncomfortable with doing a task, you rush it and you botch it. And so I've dedicated my life to helping physicians start to think about this really important conversation as a skill that they can be really proud of. Yeah. That I don't want to tell that person that their child is going to be developmentally delayed, but I know how to do it. And I know how to help. And here I go. And once we get there, 
And again, this whole podcast is making a full circle now to it's all about communication. So that's why I knew you'd be a perfect guest. So this has been great, Chris. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you at the Baird Group? The best way is just to go to our website, info at Baird, B-A-I-R-D hyphen group dot com. And you can send a message that way and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. But we have our next cohort coming up. We start new cohorts of Be the Leader Nobody Wants to Leave, eight transformational skill builders for busy leaders. We start them every eight weeks. So the next one is coming up in July. Okay, great. And I'll put that all in the show notes so they'll be able to find you so they don't have to jot that down at this media time. Thank you again. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead, hit follow on your favorite podcast platform and download all the previous episodes because I'm telling you, every one of them is just as good as Chris and Chris has been amazing. I'm really a better person for knowing you, Chris. I'm excited about what you do. And I hope that together we can keep pushing this communication and leadership training and make it better for everyone. So thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. It's an honor. Well, before we leave, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. And I want to thank the Finley Project for being such an amazing organization. Please, everyone who's listening to this episode, go ahead, visit thefinleyproject.org. See the amazing things they're doing. I've seen this organization literally saved the lives of mothers who lost infants. So to find out more, go to the FinleyProject.org. If you enjoyed this Thank podcast, you, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com. The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.